Well, we're back for round two with Steve looking at the faith of Ruth this time. And you'll be able to hear the tambourines being put away just to start there after a great time in worship together at camp. I hope you enjoy this one. It's a real treat. Okay, welcome back. I hope you've got plenty of coffee in your system. Um, you know, it's discouraging standing up here and seeing your head starting to nod. Because I guess that's on me in the end, not just on your coffee. But let me pray for you. We'll start again, all right? Father, thank you. We are thank you. Great, grateful for We're grateful for this day. And really, that we're here, that we're here together. Even the sheer fact that you've given us life this day are all indications of this deep love that you have for us. And we pray that we would rejoice in that. We would be able to enjoy that together. Uh, that even the fun that we have would be a reflection of our awareness of your grace to us and how you express that to us. And I pray that as we look at this next section as well, and particularly as we look at the character of Ruth, that um, what we would really see through this is your grace, the beauty of your grace, the open-endedness of your love and the openness of your heart for us. That, in fact, you're really just so much better even than we think you are and fully understand. And I pray that as we look at the Ruth and, and, the, and the unique and the unusual, remarkable faith that she demonstrates, um, that we would, we would be um, more willing and more available to embrace that kind of faith in our own lives and to follow that kind of a path in our journey with you. Um, a, a journey where we can trust you fully because you have demonstrated over and over again that you are trustworthy. And for every time that we step back in fear and question, you step forward and invite. So we pray that um, you would be with us through this session. In fact, not just the session, really, that you'd be the honored guest of this camp and that you would bless our time together here now in the Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope for the question that I left you with at the end of the last session, you had a chance, or you do have a chance, to um, reflect on that, to come back to that question. It's not a one-off question. In fact, it's probably a good question for us to come back to periodically through the course of our lives um, and just kind of do a reality check with God every so often. Where are we at together? Uh, the wonderful thing is, um, almost no matter what you come up with, uh, well, really, no matter what you come up with, um, the great thing, the reassuring thing is that God can handle that. And I think there's a kind of an indication of that even here with regards to Naomi, who I've sort of cast in a, maybe in a very unflattering light, at least in terms of her faith. But um, what you have to remember, of course, what we have to take note of is by the end of this story, Naomi is blessed. She's powerfully blessed above her and beyond her expectations. And I think the beautiful, simple message in that for us is no matter how questionable, no matter how corrupt even, no matter how weak or um, vulnerable our faith is, God's intention to bless us is absolute. And he does that even for Naomi. She is blessed. Blessed, again, above and beyond her expectations. But what about Ruth? Ruth, of course, this is, the book is the story of Ruth. And that's, there's no mistaking that. And the, the writer of this book, he brings us back to Ruth um, with some really powerful language and some very beautiful scenes regularly. And so we need to look at Ruth. 
outcome. And especially we need to understand here to understand this other character of faith that we're being invited to consider. So redeeming faith. What does redeeming faith look like? What does it even mean, redeeming faith? And I'm going to start by, you know the story uh, of giving you the setting, the Israelite family moving to Moab, making this disastrous choice and suffering the consequences of it, leaving Naomi then with her two daughters-in-law. And ultimately, Ruth is the one that, it says, clings to her. It's a very powerful word. She literally the picture is she, she grabs Naomi in her arms and says, I won't leave you. Um, a really powerful moment and a beautiful moment of commitment. So we, we know from the story, even the brief introduction, that there's a really strong bond here and that Ruth loves Naomi. Um, it's as simple as that. Ruth loves Naomi. And that love for Ruth is the motivating thing in her life. She's willing to act on that. You, you have to question... Um, about Ruth's faith, how much does she even know about God? This God. And no, notice that um, more for the vast majority of the times that God is mentioned in the book of Ruth, you'll see it with that capital, that uppercase L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh, right? That's a, that's a special name for God. In a sense, that's, his, that's God's first name, or that's his personal name for himself. That is the one that's most vast, the vast majority of the time you come across the word Lord in Ruth or any mention of, of God, it will be Yahweh, which is important, again, because of that personal element. Even Ruth, and I'll come to it, even Ruth uses that name. What she understands by that, given her Moabite background and she's steeped in a totally different culture, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly. But... I think what we can safely say about Ruth is at the point at which Ruth and Naomi are now leaving Moab and going back to Israel, and Ruth has made this commitment, um, Ruth is probably hanging on Naomi's faith in some ways more than she is on her own. Um, there's an awful lot there, and certainly she makes this very powerful commitment, and she does it in the form of an oath before Yahweh. So she understands the solemnity of that. But she's never been to Israel. She doesn't know anything about the life of the people of Israel before God. And all that she knows about God is what she's heard at a remove, living in Moab with this Hebrew family. So how much does she really even know about this God? Which is why when having protested to Naomi that she just won't let go of her, and that she's going forward with her, she makes this really powerful commitment. And you know it, it's really kind of the heart of the first part of the book. In chapter one, verse, I'll start from verse 15. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back to your way of life. And it's really, it's really, it's, a, it's the comment of despair. Naomi is looking ahead and she thinks, oh, I've really got nothing to look forward to. I'm not going to drag this young woman with me into that. Go back. Go back to your family. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Go back to where you're familiar with things. At least you've got a base of support there. It's a familiar world to you. Go back to that, she said. And of course, Ruth then says, makes, this, makes this wonderful pledge. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Remember, these are, these are enemies we're talking about. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And that, it's a little difficult for us perhaps to fully appreciate the, 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 the depth of that commitment. What's at stake there? What she's actually letting go of? But remember that for Naomi, the great tragedy in her life and in her setting isn't just that she's lost her husband and her children, but it's that her husband's line, the line of Elimelech, will now have no heirs, no descendants. And the way that that is expressed as the greatest of tragedies for, for really for any people of the ancient Near East at this time is their name will no longer be mentioned in the gate. They will fade from the memory of the people. That is the greatest tragedy that can befall a family. And what has Naomi, or what has Ruth just pledged herself to? She's pledged herself to follow Naomi until she dies and die where she dies and be buried where she dies. She's literally saying, I renounce, I will give up my hope of the expectation that I and my family, me and my family will be, now names of my family will be mentioned in the gate. That there'll be somebody to bury me with honor when I die and that our memory will pass on. She's just like going that. And I don't think we can really appreciate fully in our culture where it's not quite the same thing. Just what a powerful statement that is. But you can bet that the people of Israel why do they have all these elaborate laws set up for a brother to take on the wife of a, of a, of a widowed um, sister, sister-in-law? It's all about perpetuating the name of the family and keeping the client going. So they would be very sensitive. They would understand. They would get, this is an incredible commitment, what she has just offered to do. And it's, and, and well, I'll finish the pledge because this is where she couches it as an, as an oath to Yahweh. May the Lord, may Yahweh do to me, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So having done all that, she then makes it a solemn pledge before Yahweh, which she knows enough to know is about as serious a pledge as you can make. This is it. I've made my commitment, nailed my cause to the mast. I'm with you now to the very end. Now, what does that look like from Ruth's standpoint? We have to step back and consider this for a moment. She's leaving. It's kind of there step by step. I will go where you go. She's leaving her land. She's leaving her country. She's leaving her culture. And I'll lodge where you lodge. I'll I'll. I'll follow this journey with you and wherever we end up together, that's where I'll stay. She's leaving behind the security, the stability, the certainty of the place that she's from and being known and being able to rely on her family and her family network and and their network and so forth and so on to be able to live, to be able to travel, to be able to do whatever she needs to do safely as someone known and recognized. Your people will be my people. She'll be my people. She's giving up her family, her friends, 
everything that's familiar to her and that she would rely on, that any of us would rely on, for stability, for support, for security. And your God will be my God. And she's taking on the faith in a God that for her is still a foreign God, essentially. Again, how much does she really know Yahweh? Obviously enough to know that he's worth making this commitment for, without perhaps knowing a lot more besides that. And somehow she's picked that up, and, and you can see that to some degree it's come to her partly through the faith of Naomi. And so again, I think she's hanging on to Naomi's faith at this point to a large extent. But who is she? She's a young Moabite widow going to the land of Israel. And Naomi, for Naomi to do that, it's a desperate enough. She's a widow, no, no male relatives, no surviving male relatives and so forth. But at least she's going back to her home and clan and she's got some rights, some protection, a lot of uncertainty, but something. Ruth has nothing. She's a young woman. She's a widow. She has no male relatives. She has no source of support. And she is totally vulnerable. And again, I don't think we really fully appreciate what a young single woman in that context going into a strange country where she is regarded as one who has absolutely no rights. Exactly what that looks like for her. This is scary with a very capital S. It would have to be, wouldn't it? Given where she's at, given who she is. And yet she makes the pledge. And what she does, the step of faith that she takes, is a step of trust in God that's very different from the kind of faith that Naomi has demonstrated or displayed, isn't it? She's not saying, I trust you, God. I, I, will, I offer my faith in you, God, if you look out for me and protect me. She's going into this situation knowing that there is no protection. There is nothing to fall back on. There are no legal recourses to look to. This is an absolute gesture of trust. God, Yahweh, I trust you. I take this step, I make this pledge, and I make it before you, open-handedly, open-heartedly. And I ask for nothing, absolutely nothing. That's Ruth's perspective as she steps forward. And I wonder, I wonder who among us would be willing to take that step? I'm not asking for any volunteers. <laughs> but ask yourself the question, could I do that? As much as you know about God at this point in your journey with faith, of your journey with God, could I do that? Would I do that? Would I be able to do that? Do I trust God that much? Boaz, he picks up on this. And what, of course, as Ruth goes forward, she and Naomi go back to Bethlehem um, and just to survive, 
Um, Ruth goes out to the fields to start gleaning, which there is provision for her to do. Israel is set up in such a way that you might, you sort of, those of you who've come across this before, you sort of know the, the law from, the, there's, there's a section in Deuteronomy, and there's a section in, in, um, in Leviticus. Um, basically, uh, the farmer in Israel was not allowed to harvest to the edges of his field. And there was an understanding that the poor, most especially the poor in his kind of larger clan, but the poor generally, the, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, were allowed to go to the field and pick up the grain that falls from the, the stalk as it's being reaped, it's being cut with a sickle and, and put together in sheaves. And there's even a provision that if you're out there and you're harvesting and you forget, you put this bundle of stalks together with the, with the grain. If you forget one in the field, don't go back to it. Leave it there. And the poor will, the understanding is the poor will have it and they'll pick it up. It's for those who, who need it most. So Ruth, and you have to be pretty desperate to do this um, because, I mean, you're, you know, you're literally picking up barley one grain at a time unless you happen to get lucky enough to find one of these stocks. So Ruth is out there in the hot sun all day long, picking up the barley. And again, for her to go out even to do that, you begin to see a little bit at what's at stake for how vulnerable she is by the fact that Boaz does what? He says to her, when he figures out what's going, he says, look, stay with my young women, stick close to them, and stay with my clan group. And I've told everyone, and I've warned the young men. He, the, literally, the expression is, he didn't tell them, he didn't instruct them. He warned them because he knew what the potential was. He knew how vulnerable Ruth was. He warned the young men, don't mess with her. Leave her alone. Let her glean without, uh, without anyone bothering, disturbing her. Because for this with single, this widowless, young Moabite woman to be out in a field gleaning is to announce to the world, I'm poor, I have no one to look after me, I have no protector. It's like having a target on your back, particularly for any of the men in that culture. She's extremely vulnerable. And she's out there picking up this grain in the hot sun all day long for the sake of this woman to whom she's made this commitment. Boaz picks up on this. He recognizes this is someone very special and something unique happening here. And so he's the one who really draws attention to this in chapter 2, in verse 12. And kind of the key verse in that, um, to understand the picture of faith that Ruth uh, is, is inviting us to consider, really to embrace. It's this, this statement from Boaz. Boaz says in, in verse 12 of chapter 2, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward given you by the Lord, by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, incidentally, that happens, doesn't it? If you read through the blessings of this book as they're made, the blessings that Naomi makes of Boaz, of Boaz, of Ruth, of the blessings that people basically claim on behalf of the Lord, they're all fulfilled. Uh, this blessing is essentially what it is. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings 
you have come to take refuge. That blessing is fulfilled, of course, by the end of the story. But more especially, Boaz is, is really characterized Ruth's faith, what she has done. She has taken refuge under the wings of God. And that is a reflection of a recognition of her total vulnerability. And her, in a sense, she is a Moabite. What right does she have to claim anything from the God of Israel? She would know that as much as well as anyone. So there's nothing transactional about the character of her faith at all. It's, it's trust in the absolute sense. I have nothing to bring and I have no right to claim or expect anything. Nevertheless, I place myself under your wing, Lord. I take refuge under your wings. Boaz recognizes that. It's a, it's a phrase that's used in the Psalms. It's a phrase that you, that's used in, in other places in Ezekiel and so forth. It's a, it's a wonderful phrase that speaks of a certain kind of open-hearted faith and trust, willingness to trust God with no claim on any right or expectation of any kind whatsoever. And that's the faith of Ruth. And that's what we see happening here. And why is that important? What's, what's significant about that? Well, there are, are two words that are very significant throughout the book of Ruth in Hebrew. One is the term chesed, and you've probably come across that, or may, you may have come across that in other discussions um, from the, the Old Testament. And the other term is goel, goel. Chesed, we usually translate that as sort of loving kindness. Sometimes mercy, sometimes um, the, uh, the long-suffering love of the Lord. It, it's, it's a very difficult word to explain in English because it's linked. It's a kind of love that's linked directly with the covenant that God makes with the people of Israel. But it's a kind of deep love based on a deep loyalty and commitment that is, um, that is extremely generous and kind in its nature. That word is used in a number of places throughout the book of, of Ruth. Um, and it's a characteristic, it's a unique characteristic of God. It's one that's often used in the Old Testament, as I said, in relation to God, particularly to Yahweh. And it's one that's used in the book of Ruth with regard to Ruth herself. Where um, uh, Ruth is, um, both by Naomi and Boaz, is described, her kindness is described using the word, there are alternatives that would be more normal or be more common in relation to someone showing an act of generosity or kindness. But Ruth's kindness is described as chesed, the kindness that is characteristic of God himself. So this is an interesting thing because who is she? She's not an Israelite, she's a Moabite, she's a pagan foreign pagan woman. And yet, the key words that are used to describe her and that are clearly central to the kind of the, the meaning, the values of this book are the very words that are, the very unique words that are used to describe the character of God himself. And the other key word is goel, goel. So the minute that Boaz pops on the scene and Naomi realizes who he is, he is our goel, our redeemer. God is the goel of Israel the Redeemer of Israel. And Jesus, of course, is our Goel, our Redeemer. 
uh, a rich picture that has a lot to do with understanding this whole relationship of the Israelites to the land that God has given them family by family and how that dynamic works and how it's something that can never be repudiated or taken away, et cetera, et cetera. At any rate, a rich word full of lots of, of, of uh, metaphoric meaning, richness. And it's a word, again, that's used in the first instance, of course, to describe Boaz. Boaz as the redeemer, the redeemer of Ruth's, of Ruth's uh, family, of Elimelech's family. And then you get this interesting passage at the end of chapter 4, um, where the, the, the sort of teased out version of the Goel, the Redeemer, is applied in a, in a, in a, a little bit of an unusual and interesting way. Chapter 4, verse 13, this is almost at the very end, where now Ruth has married Boaz, Ruth has had a child, and Naomi and the women of Bethlehem are sort of mooning over this baby, um, and, and which is, of course, a wonderful outcome. And um, I'll read the passage, because uh, it's actually it's, it's quite sort of complex linguistic, but I'll read the passage, starting from chapter 13. So this is 4, verse 13. So Boaz, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the name, blessed, blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, a Goel. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, this is a this is a really rich passage when you come later into the New Testament, because uh, who is who is actually being referred to here is the child the child of Boaz and Ruth, as the child whose name will be renowned in Israel because of the remarkable circumstances of his birth, who is um, not just renowned in Israel, but Bethlehem. So this special child born in Bethlehem as a redeemer, and it would be unusual to speak of a of a baby, of a child <clears throat> born in this situation. Remember, up to this point, Boaz has been, according to the law and according to the leverate marriage arrangements and so forth, Boaz is the obvious redeemer. And yet, this child who will be famous in Israel, born in Bethlehem, under these remarkable circumstances, is the Goel. And of course, later on, the uh, the the New Testament, um, the New Testament apostles they recognized this this is a prophecy. This is prefiguring the Goel who will be born in Bethlehem, in the direct line, of course, of this redeemer, who will who 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 will be who will be the redeemer on a, on a completely unimagined scale, if you will. At any rate, it goes on. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. And what they have just done is, on the basis of Ruth's love and commitment to Naomi, and the basis of her trust, unique and profound trust in God, she has become, she has become the Goel, the Redeemer, 
which is not a phrase or a term, an application that would ever be made about a pagan woman under these conditions. But you see what's happened is there's this recognition. Something, God has done something unique here. A, a, a Moabite isn't even supposed to marry in Israel. And they're supposed to be cursed for generations afterwards. So how is, can, how can the, this is what Boaz has married Ruth, a Moabite. And this is the thing that the, the writer of Ruth wants us to see. This, again, this is very confronting for his, his Israelite audience initially. Their, their heads are just spinning at this point saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ruth is a pagan who ends up marrying this um, Jewish man under these circumstances and has a son who then becomes the heir of Elimelech and his family. And they're not even supposed to be married in the first place. So how can God, how can God endorse this whole thing? And yet, it's not just that God allows it to take place. He blesses it. He puts his, steel, his seal of approval on it. Why? How can that be? Because of the character of the faith of Ruth. Ruth's willingness and her ability to trust God in the way that God has always invited Israel to trust God. Ruth's ability to do that doesn't just make her faithful. It doesn't just make her um, blessed. It makes her a redeemer. And I think this is a really important point that uh, element of the book of Ruth um, that's, that's quite powerful for us as people of faith. Because what it implies is that this kind of faith not only brings blessing to those who are willing to embrace it, those who are willing to trust God to that extent, it blesses everyone around them as well. The faith of Ruth not only brings her to a point of peace and security and blessing, it brings Naomi to a place of peace and security and blessing. And it extends the honor of Boaz and his line. It creates this sort of uh, well of blessing from which other people can be refreshed and can benefit. And that's the picture of faith that God is inviting us to. Our ability, our willingness to put aside our expectations, our willingness to look clearly with clear eyes, clear-sighted into the things that we fear most, into the place that we most fear to go and stretch out our hand and say to God, I trust you. I trust you. Take me forward. That kind of faith becomes a well of blessing for numerous untold, uncounted others, not just us. That's redeeming faith. That's, that's why Ruth is recognized by these women as Goel, as a redeemer, not, not, a, not a phrase that would ever be applied either to a woman or to a pagan because they, they get what's happened here. God has done something special. He has blessed what everyone else would have said was wrong. But it goes beyond that. And this is an important thing to recognize um, with regard to this 
structure of this book. Um, and I'll, I think I'm going to leap very quickly now to the big picture. Um, understand that for Ruth, this has been a very difficult journey. And maybe the most difficult part of this whole journey is the point at which Naomi sends her off to the threshing floor of Boaz, all dolled up and ready to go, knowing that Boaz is going to be eating and drinking and that, that this woman is going into a very vulnerable situation, as I said before. Ruth stepping into that. It's, a, it's really, it's a, it's a very confronting picture of the, the pathway, the journey of this kind of faith because she's already taken this enormous risk, hasn't she, in going to Israel with Naomi in the first place. She's incredibly vulnerable. And then she's out there gleaning away in the fields, totally vulnerable again. And then what happens? Her own mother-in-law, the very person that she's done all this for and whom she, to whom she's most committed, sends her off to this man with the understanding that she's offering herself to him, possibly to become his concubine, possibly. It can go any way here. And with no recourse to anyone or anything and no, 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 basically no choices except to do it or not to do it. Knowing what this, the significance of this is, she knows what she's going into. And so far, her faith has done what? It's led her out of the land of her home and her family to a foreign place where she has no standing. It's led her out into the fields, in a, in a sense, announcing her total vulnerability to the world. And now what has her faith done? It's taken her even further into a more scary place, a scarier place still. And this is, I think, important for us to get before we fully catch or, or, or take on the, 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 the ultimate blessing. When God invites us into this kind of faith and we step forward, our response inevitably will be, having taken the first step, now when is the safety and the security and the predictability and the clarity all going to come? And God's response may very well be, not only not yet, but you haven't gone far enough and take us the next step, even deeper into the uncertainty, into the unknown, into the intimidating. And when we get there, we'll stand up and we'll say, okay, still with the adrenaline sort of shooting through us, I've got this far, Lord, I'm here, I'm with you, you're with me, now, now, can I relax? And God will say, may very well say, as, as exactly as we see here, not yet. We're going to take another step even further. And if you thought the last bit was scary and uncertain, guess what? There's a wonderful uh, passage in the, one of the books of Narnia, uh, The Horse and His Boy, um, where the hero, Shasta, well, I think actually the hero is the horse, but at any rate, the co-hero, Shasta, has just, with the horse, has just completed this really difficult mission, dangerous. And he survived, they get through, they get to a place of safety uh, in the castle of the king, and he's exhausted. He's just, he's been riding constantly, he's gone through this really difficult um, challenge and come through by the skin of his teeth, He's exhausted and he wants to sleep. He just wants to lie down and rest. Okay, 
I'm here. Now can I rest? And the king at that point sends a messenger to Shasta. And the messenger says, the king needs you. He needs you to go on another mission. It will be very difficult and your life will be at risk. And Shasta's like, no, please, I just want to sleep. And this is what the, and then the narrator breaks in at this point. He says this, which is, which is really the picture of Ruth in some ways. He forgot what most of us forget, which is that the usual reward for successfully completing a difficult and dangerous task isn't rest. It's an even more difficult and dangerous task. This is our life in God. This is the life of redeeming faith. The very point at which we want to say to God, I just want to sleep. God says, you've trusted me. And I can see that I can trust you. And you can see that I can trust you. So now I'm going to trust you even further. And that's tough. That is faith at its hardest. The point at which God actually says to us, you know what? I trust you. That should scare us all. Because the direction, the place that God is going to take us to is not rest, but an even more difficult and demanding task. Ruth, having made her way through that journey in this story, comes to the end. And unusually for us, and unusually even for the Old Testament, we get this picture. Now, again, bear with me. I, I have my, as you see, I throw out a lot of observations and then it takes a little while for me to get my ducks in a row, but hopefully um, we'll, we'll finish up with this. The last, the very last part of the book of Ruth. I talked about these bookends. The setup for Ruth going to uh, the time of the judges, time of chaos in Israel. And the other bookend is at the end, the genealogy. And the genealogy at the end of chapter 4, verse 18, says this. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, the son of Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David, right? When was this book written? Well, it was almost certainly written at the time of King David or shortly thereafter. And why was it written? Because the time of King David is the golden age for the people of Israel, for the nation of Israel under God. This is the time when the enemies of Israel have been subdued, when King David is solidly, faithfully on the throne, the friend of God, when the Lord is honored in Israel, unlike at any other time, and where his name is glorified in the nations. This is the golden age of Israel. And where have we come from? The darkest time of Israel, during the time of the judges, right? And so what this story is telling us is that through the faith of Ruth, arguably through the faith of Ruth and Obed, uh, Boaz, we'll, we'll talk about Boaz, or we'll talk about Boaz, he certainly deserves full attention. 
But through this redeeming faith of Ruth, this Moabite woman, God brings about the golden era of Israel through her descendant. From this incredibly stupid mistake and faithless mistake that these good Israelite people have made in the first place during the time of the judges. So God has taken this disaster and he has, through faith, transformed it into a thing of historic beauty. Now, we don't often get that perspective. It would be enough and it would be more typical of so much of the Bible if it just ended with the birth of Obed and the blessing of Naomi and everybody, you know, they're married and everything ends happily ever after. But we get that little bit at the end, which is incredibly profound because it helps us to see the significance of this story from God's perspective. One of those rare occasions where this simple faith and its consequences have, this, have, have effect on a, on a heavenly scale and a historic scale. And that is redeeming faith. That's what redeeming faith looks like. That's why we can talk about the kind of trust that Ruth demonstrates in taking this incredible journey with God creates a situation in which Others are able to be blessed. And in fact, I'll read a little quote from uh, John Piper. It's not just the nation of Israel, is it, in the end? Piper writes this. God wants us to know that when we follow him in this way, our lives always mean more than we think they do. The story points to David. David points to Jesus. Jesus points to resurrection and eternal life. That's redeeming faith. That's the faith of Ruth. That's the scary faith that Ruth embraces and that she willingly takes on and goes forward with. And that's the faith that this book is inviting us to. So my next question for you What will it take for you to accept this invitation from God? What will it take for you to accept this invitation from God? The story of Ruth isn't just an instructive story. It's an invitation. It was an invitation to the people of Israel in its time and an insight for them to understand what it looked like for them to live the kind of faith as God's people that God had always, always wanted them to do. It's an invitation to us. Because beautifully, this is a story about a vulnerable young woman. And it's most profound, and it's most meaningful, it's most telling. A beautiful young woman, this individual. So it speaks directly to us as individuals. And the question is, seeing this before us, and understanding its implications. What will it, it's an invitation. And so what will it take for you to accept this invitation from God? I think this book, certainly this book for me, has, has been, it's been very troubling in some ways. As I've worked through it and studied it for, for a while now. And, and, and so rich in so many other ways. But the thing that really haunts me, and so I'm 
I'm extending this to you because I want it to haunt you too, <laughs> is just that question. What will it take for you to accept the invitation to this kind of faith? So let me close with a prayer. Father, we, um, we, we really, we can't help but love the character, the figure of Ruth. And I suppose the more we understand her, the more we understand her background, where she comes from, what she must give up in order to follow you in the way that we see in this story. What it must have been like for her at each stage of that process. The, the huge intimidation of the setting that she was living in and the situations that she faced. Just how frightening they must have been for this young woman. And yet she took refuge under your wings and she remained there, trusting you, looking to you with absolute <coughs> trust and faith. And Father, we find that, I certainly find that picture a very compelling one. Um, a very beautiful one and, and a, a really confronting one at the same time. My faith doesn't measure up to that kind of faith. And I suspect that my brothers and sisters here are probably wondering what it will take for their faith to measure up to that kind of faith too. And so our question to you and our prayer to you is, first of all, because we need wisdom and insight and discernment to see our own lives clearly enough, that you would give us the grace to have that discernment, to see what it is, what it is that we rely on in place of this kind of faith, what resources of our own we tend to fall back on when we're really confronted, challenged, face intimidating difficulties, how much our, the character of our faith is at the point of just wanting to rest and relax and be free from concern. And what it will take for us then, trusting you, deeply trusting you to take that next step into the unknown. And we know, we, we, we know in our heart of hearts that the next steps forward for us are always into the unknown. And we believe, certainly we say we believe, that you are trustworthy to take us there. But there is this gap between what we say and what we feel. And our, our prayer to you, Father, is that as we open our hearts to you again, as we look to you, as we trust you, and as we respect, in fact, as we thank you for the gentleness of your grace to us, that with all of that in mind and with, with mercy, you would honestly reveal to us, show us, each one, what it will take for us to accept this invitation to take you by the hand and to walk with you into the, into the unknown and simply trust that you, you know where you're taking us. You know why you're taking us there. You know what the implications of that will be. You know who will be blessed ultimately by that faith and that we may never see any of those things, but that in your hands, in your plan, in your incredibly profound wisdom, you can and you will make all of this happen. We pray that with all of these things, you would reassure us. Like that man in the Gospels, Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We pray to you and ask you to strengthen the faith that we have for your sake. And we ask in the name of Jesus.